Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, the McDonald Laurie Institute's premier public policy podcast. My name is Brett Byers, Communications Manager at MLI, and today we're delighted to be bringing you a conversation between MLI Senior Fellow and Associate Professor at the University of Copenhagen, Dr. Balkan Devlin, and Dr. Hannah Celeste, the Editor in Chief of Ukraine Analytica. In their wide ranging discussion, Drs. Devlin and Celeste discuss Russian President Vladimir Putin's recent constitutional changes and what they mean for Russia, the region, Canada, and the world. Enjoy. Uh, welcome. This is Balkan Devlin, Senior Fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute and Associate Professor at the University of Copenhagen. Today, we will talk about Putin's new plans after 2024 with Dr. Hanna Celeste the editor-in-chief of Ukraine Analytica, one of the premier English-language policy journals in Ukraine, and the board member uh, of Foreign Policy Council, Ukraine PRISM. She is also one of the sharpest analysts of international affairs in Ukraine. Anna, it's a pleasure to have you. Hello, thank you for inviting. So, um, Putin shocked everybody uh, by announcing sweeping changes to the Constitution last week. And everyone is wondering what are his plans after 2024. So could you give us a rundown of what those plans are, what those changes are right now? Uh, you know, I would not say that it was a huge surprise. I would divide his actions probably into two uh, baskets. One uh, connected with the changes to the constitutions. While nobody expected that it can go that far, but it was expected that Putin is looking for the variants, how to prolong his power or how to secure certain uh, power mechanisms, maybe after 2024. Uh, there are definitely changes with the prime minister on the cabinet because many of those who were there for so many years, people expected that this cabinet can stay at least till uh, 2024. First, if to go with the changes with the uh, cabinet of ministers, that's really interesting. He changed all the social bloc, uh, as we call it, so means all ministers who are more in the social economic issues. And here it is understandable because Putin is trying to show that he's a good Tsar and that is his ministers who are bad guys who don't know how to operate the country. So meaning all those decreases in economy of the uh, last years, he just uh, delegated to uh, to these ministers. At the same time, as he remained left at his, uh, their positions, Minister of Defense and Minister of Foreign Affairs, two people who are really formulating the security and foreign policy of today, it is a demonstration that as for now, Putin is not going to change the country policies in any way. He is focusing on revamping the domestic political issues and trying to address some of the discontent among the Russian Russian public regarding the economy particularly, but the changes suggest that he will keep the courts with regards to foreign and, and security policy. Yes, for sure, uh, because uh, recently we started to see that his ratings were falling a little bit, and most of the reasons were exactly uh, because of the economic situation. And the reason is that a lot of money have been spent either for wars outside, like Syria and Ukraine, or for projects in Crimea, very expensive projects, uh, but money should be from somewhere. Yep, and this money were predominantly coming from other underprivileged regions of Russia. So to make it at least at the 
PR. The best way was definitely to change people and to say that, okay, now wait, we will uh, probably change the situation and improve your life being. So that's that's the change of the cabinet of ministers to so trying to bring new fresh faces and also like the stars of old, punish the, the, the subordinates who are not delivering the, the desired outcomes for the public. That's, that's one element. What about sort of these uh, constitutional changes uh, would mean for his own power after 2024? That's really interesting because we still don't know as uh, there are just propositions. It is not the legislative text yet. And uh, as he said, that they should be approved at the referendum. But as we can understand that 99.9% that Russian population would agree. And uh, here is definitely we see certain swift from the presidential republic to the presidential parliamentary or parliamentary presidential republic. So given a little bit more forces, uh, more powers and functions to the parliament of the Russian Federation. And here there is a chance for him definitely to switch positions. The second uh, interesting point uh, that just few experts really noted, it is about who can become the next president of the Russian Federation. When you read attentively this close, I, I mean, at least the statement uh, of Mr. Putin, it is said that the person should live 25 years in Russia. Okay, that is their right. But not only at the territory of Russia, but at the territories that joined the Russian Federation. It means that, first of all, we are talking about Crimea, for sure, illegally annexed uh, uh, six years ago. But it also can say about probably Abkhazia or South Ossetia, Georgian territories, in case Putin later would decide to uh, take the incorporate them uh, to the Russian Federation. Or we can say maybe about, uh, for example, for me, that is a question about Transnistria, as Transnistria is Moldovan territory, but at least half of the population has Russian passports. So can people that were born, for example, raised there to become the next uh, presidents as well? Are there any you know, possible candidates from these, um, you know, either unrecognized territories or illegally occupied uh, territories by Russia like, like Crimea that might actually be potential uh, candidates? As for now, definitely no. Uh, at least we haven't heard about uh, any people like this. But that is really interesting. It seems to me that these constitutional changes uh, that he announced also shows us one very important thing. For at least two years, uh, all experts in the West have been expecting that Putin would announce who will be after him, who will be his beloved candidate. And we heard at least about five big names who can be. None of them really raised up after this. All of them mostly at the same positions. And it seems to me that he just realized that uh, he doesn't trust anybody and he doesn't want four years in advance to announce any candidacy. That's why he is trying to use all options possible to have more options by 2024. He wants to keep his options open and perhaps keep the, um, uh, the the Russian elite in in a state of uncertainty. I guess right, keep them on their toes, and so that nobody's place is is secured, and and and, and Putin perhaps can develop and continue to you know, be the ultimate arbiter in the system. 
Yes, but also with this Security Council that uh, it, it has been since the beginning of the 1990s with the changing forces. But that is interesting where he uh, sent the previous Prime Minister Medvedev, who was one of the possible alternative candidates after 2024 and who recently started to play more and more independently in Moscow politics. So now he received a new position, the deputy head of the National Security Council. The head is the president. It seems to me that uh, it was done intentionally, first of all, to make this figure less public. So now Mr. Medvedev will have less uh, attention from media. And at the same uh, time, under some control from uh, Russian president, because he's becoming again his subordinate, but in the very narrow sphere, just connected with the military reforms, procurement and all the stuff connected with the military industry. Within the proposed changes to the constitution, do we know any clear um, you know, statements or plans to change the role of either the state council or the Security Council and make those bodies more powerful and, and possibly being led by, by, by Vladimir Putin after he stepped down from the presidency. Uh, you know, it is not announced yet, but the question is that you don't need changes to the Constitution to change the power of uh, Security Council. For this, it is uh, um, lower level legislation is available and it's much easier to do, predominantly by the decision of the president. At the same time, uh, um, we definitely can understand that currently it is such a state body that you can play as much as you want, depending how much power. What is more interesting that for some time it has been expected that Putin would become leader or the head of the joint Russian-Belarus uh, state in case we will have the United States on a certain way. And that would be for him uh, maybe less power, but at least the respective uh, pension uh, with the certain control and influence. But as we see now, this process became uh, more and more difficult that uh, Belarusian president is not that much fond of uh, unity of two countries. And he learned the lessons of uh, the Ukrainian events of the last six years. So it seems to me that Putin really rejected this idea now and is searching for alternatives for himself. But that, you know, strengthening and perhaps revamping the Union State State Council for future as an option, he might be still keeping there and planning for post-Lukashenko period. From uh, from what I can see, uh, he, is, as you have mentioned, he tries to keep his options open and do not want to necessarily commit to one sure way of doing things later on. Another question, he, he talked about in, in, in that speech, uh, enshrining the state council in the constitution, which probably would suggest more explicit powers to the state, uh, state council in the constitution that cannot be taken away later on when you have a change of regime. If that happens, could we see that as a way to transition back to the Soviet model of, of Politburo running the things and the president 
being a more sort of a ceremonial position. Theoretically, it can be, for sure. The question is that the Soviet variant of uh, ruling was mostly party-based. Even as now we have that definitely uh, one party is uh, dominating all spheres of life, but it's still not the Communist Party because uh, uh, you have uh, still not bad positions of the Communist Party, of the Zhirinovsky Party, uh, of you others. Uh, definitely, there none of them uh, real opposition. Uh, but at the same time, it is still not a monopoly to power that uh, one party can execute. So in this case, uh, we can imagine that if Putin is not a president, the uh, constitution of the parliament can be different because not so many people would be supporting his party. And uh, because of this, we can see more influence from others. So in this way, you never would be 100% sure what composition of the state council or of the parliament of those bodies who would be deciding about the future leadership. And in this, in, in, at least under, under Vladimir Putin, the system seems to be much more personalized in the sense that it is Vladimir Putin rather than any other party or any other collective uh, body that does the governing, um, say, compared to the Brezhnev era uh, during the Soviet Union. So the idea then to distribute power to different bodies, to the parliament, to the prime minister's office, to the security council, to the state council and the president, and Vladimir Putin as the sort of the final arbiter above them in a way similar to what Lee Kuan Yew did in, in Singapore as the minister mentor, or if you want to go back to the Roman times as Augustus, as the first citizen who does the final arbiting and the final veto player in the system. Does that strike you the way that he wants to move on? You know, you don't need to go that uh, back as the uh, Roman. You can go to the current Kazakhstan, where you have the president and you have the leader of the nation, the first leader of the nation. That is definitely interesting because definitely he still has the most power and all people uh, know his name, but not the name of the president of Kazakhstan. But at the same time, it seems to me that in Russia that is not possible. It will be more of the uh, indirect control of other spheres because first of all it is not a central Asian or Asian countries where you have these more uh, authoritarian ways in terms of loving the uh, leader of the nation so it's a little bit different style of the society and culture of the society already even with all the authoritarian ruling in current Russia the second issue is that many of those that you named they were the first in something so they had some kind of the symbolic way of doing it both Kazakhstan and in Singapore, Putin is not the first one. Yeah, we already had uh, at least Yeltsin before him. Uh, and the second thing is that he is from the KGB. So for him, the covered operations, the way of controlling people, that people would like to be controlled, it is something he knows better than just to be a symbol of the nation, like a queen in the United Kingdom, nothing to control, but everybody are waiting what she would say. It's not his style, probably. Uh, let's let's switch to sort of the the regional and international dimensions of what these changes might mean for for Russian foreign and, and security policy. 
perhaps too early to to know what precisely the changes would be and what what, what could be the effects. But what can some of the sort of scenarios or, or directions that you can discern that might come with, with these changes in the constitution and the governing style of Russia in terms of regional and, and foreign policy? You know, first of all, there are at least several dimensions. Dimension number one, it is connected with so-called close neighborhood, as Russians named it. So the post-Soviet space. And here, what is interesting that even the Russian opposition that can be very anti-Putin, but when they speak about uh, illegal annexation of Crimea or about Ukraine or about Georgia, their rhetoric is still very Russian nationalistic. So in this case, it doesn't matter do we have Putin, Russia still would like to control these territories and to be um, against uh, NATO, first of all, and even the European uh, Union. It goes deeper than Putin, but more of a part of the strategic culture um, of the Russian state. It is going much deeper, unfortunately, than Putin. Uh, even when I talked recently with some Russian experts, they said, like, you know, we are not sure that for Ukraine it would be better when Putin would go, because uh, new people that can come, they would not have sentiments as him, but they will be just fighting for power, and Ukraine can become just a hostage of this fighting for power, or, or for the necessity of the new victories uh, for the Russian Federation. So here, unfortunately, we are not expecting any positive changes doesn't matter is it Putin continuing to control Russian politics or the new people coming. At the same time, you have the relations with the so-called West. And here you don't need the constitutional changes to see that currently Putin is already seeking the change of the relations. But here is definitely bilateral relations above the uh, relations between the European Union as the institution, for example, and uh, the Russian Federation. The same with the global affairs. Russia would like to be part of them. And here it doesn't matter Putin or not, most of the Russian politicians already with this dogma of Russian leadership, our Russian global presence, and Russian desire to be involved in the biggest crisis, both making and deciding. So he, regardless of whether it is led by Putin or, or someone else, Russia would continue to claim a place in the table and would push both the Europeans and the transatlantic community to reckon Russia as, as one of the key players. And if they're not recognized as such, continue to disrupt, undermine, and destabilize the international order. So it actually seems to me, from what you said, it goes beyond Putin's personal beliefs about how the system should be organized. Putin is a symptom of the more sort of broader Russian strategic culture uh, continue to think in terms of 19th century power politics and, and Russia is a great power uh, rather than others. Uh, I would say that he's not a symptom because he's one of the fathers of this current politics that uh, you would call the Soviet nostalgia. And here I would disagree with you that it is 19th century power politics because it is very much called the war uh, politics for the Russian Federation. Uh, first of all, because for them, the Cold War is not over. They don't want to believe that they lost in it. So they still think about uh, the West, the Western institutions in terms 
of uh, Cold War and Soviet times. And the second is that they would like to have the same power as the Soviet Union had. They don't want to understand that current Russia is not what Soviet Union used to be. And you can see that in their propaganda abroad, a lot of the ideas that Russia is the same as, with the same power, with the same capabilities as Soviet Union used to be. Uh, that's why I can expect that in case they would like to disturb the situation, in case they are not around the, big, the table of the big boys, they're going for the um, other countries beyond the Europe. But at the same time, the only change, uh, the only scenario that I can imagine is uh, if Putin is changing to somebody else, it is a little bit warming up with the European Union. Because here you always can make the relations pragmatic to speak about energy, to speak about economic ties, and to find certain countries that uh, are already looking for the warming up of relations with the Russian Federation. Let me take from there. Would this be a pretext for some of the politicians in, in Europe, such as Emmanuel Macron, for example, that would like to seem to at least develop a closer you know, relation with Russia or try to reset the, uh, the relations? Uh, or some of, the, some of the politicians in Germany that would like to uh, develop a, a modus vivendi with Russia. Would, would these changes be used as a way for those uh, politicians in Europe to accept Russian influence in its uh, near abroad? You know, we already saw this case last uh, June when the Russian delegation returned back to the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. And it was a very interesting case because so many members of the European Parliament, especially from France and Germany, uh, were talking that uh, we need the place for the dialogue with Russia. We need to return Russia uh, back. And they didn't care that Russia hadn't fulfilled by that time any of those requirements, uh, allegations that Council of Europe had against the Russian Federation, first of all, because of the illegal annexation of Crimea. And they definitely are multiplying this idea of the necessity of the dialogue with the Russian Federation. But the problem is that they are already receiving negative effect from this. Uh, Council of Europe definitely demonstrated when the next day after the Russian delegation uh, were back, uh, Russian delegation proposed for the position of the vice president, the um, MP, who had the sexual harassment scandal inside of uh, the Russian Federation. So if Council of Europe is speaking about the human rights, about all these issues at the top value, saying that our oh, conflicts is not for us to discuss. So here it was like a bullying of the Council of Europe by proposing such a personality. And uh, I think that more and more uh, will be expected at the uh, winter session that uh, starting these uh, days. For many European politicians, they are already seeking this dialogue with Russian Federation, but we always need to understand that sometimes it is not about Russia. It is uh, even much more about uh, themselves or their own countries, like with Emmanuel Macron. His rapprochement with the Moscow, it's not because they see that Russia is good or that Russia improved uh, in their behavior towards Europe. It is uh, some kind of overplaying himself meaning that Macron wanted to return France to the global politics to show it's more um, influential. So he returned back to this idea of the Eurasian security and so on and so on. In this case, the Russian Federation is the only ally or partner in crime that probably he saw. But uh, definitely, I mean, it, it can be a short-term uh, success in the internal politics to bring some uh, right-wing uh, 
electorate before the next uh, presidential elections. But in the long-term politics, that is definitely something that we still uh, will see consequences. And it will is a way to undermine the rule-based international order if by doing this you actually send the message that bullying, occupation, carrying out assassinations on territory of other countries uh, do pay off because some of the Western politicians are worried about or cared more for their short-term electoral gain rather than upholding the rules that international order is based. In that sense, it does benefit the Russian narrative that some countries are more sovereign than the others and therefore they should decide how the system should work. So we don't necessarily expect much change in that direction. In this case, it is very important that we have positions of such countries as Japan, the United Kingdom, Canada that are present, especially in the G7 where Russia care about opinion of G7 because uh, this gives a certain balance and a certain real values about what is made international law today that we understand that it is gentleman agreements but you are either gentleman or you understand that in a few years you can have the same problems and Japan probably was one of the first who said in 2014 that guys in case you in Europe don't understand what is made annexation of Crimea we in Japan clearly feeling that the next country and the next territories can be ours. Exactly. So which brings me to the point regarding regarding Canada as a member of G7 as an important partner both for Ukraine and and for the Baltic countries. Canada has been from the very beginning very vocal about its its opposition to uh, Russian annexation and Russian occupation in in Ukraine and its various uh, subversive activities across Europe. And they did pay a price in terms of uh, Christia Freeland, the former uh, foreign minister, current the deputy prime minister, has been declared persona non grata in Russia, a very clear positioning there. What these, uh, the, the current changes would suggest in terms of, what would you suggest to the, to the Canadian foreign minister or the prime minister if you're sitting together across uh, Justin Trudeau and, and he wanted to ask you, what does this mean about Canada's commitment and, and policies both regarding Ukraine and, and perhaps also also the Baltics? Uh, you know, each year, uh, Foreign Policy Council analyzes uh, the foreign policy of Ukraine in 49 directions, given a scorecards. Canada is one of them. And I just finished uh, editing the uh, part about Canada in 2019 and would like to say that uh, Canada among top of the top for the uh, Ukrainian foreign policy and for the bilateral relations. But uh, even here, with all the wonderful support, especially in the security sphere, in training of our military, that we have uh, all the international support for the NATO membership, for the global affairs, for uh, fighting illegal annexation, uh, we still have certain issues there that just would make our relations more beneficial. First is the issues of the visa regime that is very um, on the top of the agenda for the bilateral relations and that can improve it. The second is the issue of the widening the um, free trade agreement that we signed uh, 
just a little bit more than a year ago, and it already uh, demonstrates the benefits for two countries. And now we are discussing its widening. And the uh, um, third issue, it is the military support, not only in terms of advice and training, but uh, what we started to have last year in November, if I'm not mistaken, the first contract for giving the sniper rifles to Ukraine. So the military contracts. And uh, that is not just Ukraine buying um, such uh, military equipment from Canada, but probably the joint um, enterprises in this sphere is what can be really interesting for two countries in the future. So what you're saying is that Canada is... Uh has been a, a great supporter both for Ukraine and for the other allies in the Baltics, but can continue to show up this support um, and thus make these countries, Ukraine and, 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 and the other allies in Eastern Europe and the Baltics, to be more resilient towards whatever Putin or, or the following regime could throw at them in the, in the future. Exactly. Well, uh, on that note, thank you very much for this uh, great conversation. I'm sure our listeners learned a lot. Uh, unfortunately, we will continue to talk about Putin and his plans in the future. Thank you very much, Dr. Anna Shalest. Thank you for the invitation.